kids are naturally compassionate. It comes out in a number of different ways, but I was thinking about the compassion that children have um, as I was recalling a trip that we took when we moved from Texas up to Pennsylvania for seminary. We had to divide and conquer because we had one car, but we had all of our possessions in a U-Haul rental. So Heather took one of our kids in the, in the minivan and I took the other kid and, and put her up in the front seat. And it was our older daughter. And so she was like maybe three and a half at this time. And she's in one of those car seats. But in, a, in the front of a big uh, truck, she actually could see everything. And unlike the minivan where, you know, you can't really see much if you're a kid. And, and it didn't take long before we came across a deer that was on the side of the road, sleeping. <laughs> but it didn't look like it was sleeping. And so the question came up, Daddy, what happened to that deer? And I just thought, uh-oh, uh, how do I explain this? And, and I said, well, he didn't follow the rules. He played in the road, and he got hit by a car. And um, th it's a long way from Texas to Pennsylvania. <laughs> and her compassion was to just keep saying, deer shouldn't play in the road, shouldn't play in the road. And she wanted to help, help the deer in some way, but of course, there's not an easy way to do that. But, but people have a built-in compassion. When we see somebody or something hurting, we don't like that. We want to reverse it, we want to heal it in some way. We want to intervene. But we often want to do this on our terms, with our set limits. And real help is usually costly in some way. It takes a lot from us. So we help in part, a little bit, but not as much as, needs, as the, the need really calls for. If you think back to the very first uh, major clash in the Bible, where Cain murders his brother Abel, God comes to him and says, where's your brother? And he says, why should I know? Am I my brother's keeper? And when Cain asks that question, God doesn't answer it directly right there. He answers it through the entire rest of the Bible. The answer is yes. I expect you to care for one another. You are your brother's keeper and he is yours. This is the way of the Lord. Now today, we're going to look at the, how the way of Jesus heals society, a society that's become fractured and fragmented and only looks out for number one. Instead of caring for one another, the question, who is my neighbor, will keep coming up. And God expects us to care for one another, and when we do that, society is strengthened and healed. Now, we're in this series of Jesus as the ultimate physician, and we're looking at the, a number of ways that he heals. And so today, I'm looking at the bigger picture of society and how he heals society. We've got the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is arguably the most famous teaching of Jesus there is. Interestingly enough, it only occurs in Luke's gospel, and yet probably more people, I don't know how to get this answer, but probably more people in the world know the parable of the Good Samaritan than any other teaching that's out there. You can debate me on it, but it's definitely in the top three, I would say. So this is a really uh, powerful story, and I, was, I just looked it up in Webster's Dictionary, just punched in Good Samaritan in the online dictionary, and there's a definition. In fact, it was first in the English uh, language, it was first coined as a term in 1850 and has been in Webster's Dictionary since then. And it defined it as this, a good Samaritan is any person who helps another person, especially a stranger, when they are in trouble. That's what a good Samaritan is. And did you know this, that in all 50 of our states, there is a good Samaritan law, that's what it's called, a good Samaritan law or the good Samaritan act. And what it does is it protects you if you go and help somebody um, with the right intentions, but somebody's in a desperate need and you go over and help them, you won't be sued in response. 
So if I find you passed out and do CPR and manage to break one of your ribs or something, I've saved your life and you turn around and sue me for breaking a rib, good Samaritan laws protect that. But the interesting thing is if you ask people what is a Samaritan, they'll say somebody who helps somebody in need. They won't have any idea that a Samaritan is a historical person who lived in the town of Samaria or the region of Samaria, and that whole good Samaritan thing comes from the teaching of Jesus. They don't know that. And this teaching has this neighbor-on-neighbor hatred built into it that Jesus is dealing with. So um, a 20th century author, a prolific writer, Isaac Asimov, took this story and he said, it's actually more like this. Imagine that you were in 1950s Alabama, right in the middle of the civil rights conflict as it's stirring up, and you've got a man injured, half dead on the side of the road. The white town mayor walks past on the other side. The town preacher walks past on the other side. A black sharecropper goes over and heals this man at great personal expense. It's that radical what Jesus is talking about in this parable. He's bringing something out here that is, uh, that is it's hard for us to get our minds around because we don't really think Samaritans. And the way of Jesus is the way of love for all, for all people. That's the way of Jesus. And love for all people will heal society. If you like equal rights for people, you need to thank Jesus for that. Because before his teaching, it really wasn't a thing. It wasn't even thought of. It was just understood that there were different classes of people and different values of people. This idea of equality was something that Jesus brought into our world. And his teaching was so powerful that it has influenced in particular this country. Now think about this. You'll recognize these words from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Those are not self-evident. Our founders were so thoroughly affected by Christian morality that they, to them it was self-evident because for years they had, they had understood this idea. But it was Jesus' idea and he brought it into this world. And people that don't accept Jesus, they don't care about his teachings, they don't subscribe to his morality, actually don't have any basis for this idea. It's not self-evident. If it was, then other cultures would have the similar equality laws that we do, and they don't. In fact, it's, it's sort of fitting that this text, which I laid out about two months ago, um, was lined up for this week because Thursday, Thursday down at the University of Florida, we had Richard Spencer, who is that white supremacist guy that caused the problems up in Charlottesville, Virginia, scheduled to speak, and the university spent like almost three quarters of a million dollars on security so that another catastrophe wouldn't happen. And Richard Spencer got up basically to say white people are supreme. Now, thankfully, there was no violence. And it's also interesting that the people that were there shouted so much that he didn't even get to speak. They just shut him down. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. But see, it's not self-evident. It's not self-evident that all people are created equal. Otherwise, white supremacy, otherwise all these other things out there wouldn't be there. It would be obvious that's wrong. And it's only obvious because of the influence of the teaching of Jesus. So if you like the concept of equality, thank Jesus. He's the one that brought it to us. He's the one that passed it on. Now, this parable is addressing a number of things. It's not just addressing racism. It's addressing selfishness, self-interest. It's even addressing doubt. So consider the lawyer 
who comes to um, attack Jesus. He comes to test him, and he comes to justify himself. Now, lawyers get a bad rap, and I have a number of lawyers that are friends, so let me say something here. Um, The lawyers in this story are more, they're closer to what I am than what a barrister, as the Brits call it, or someone who practices law today would be. This is not civil law. This is God's law. So these were the religious scholars who studied the the Old Testament. They were coming to test Jesus. And so it'd be like someone who studies God's word and has a degree in divinity and theology coming to test Jesus. So he comes and he wants to put Jesus to the test. and, And then it shows that he also wants to justify himself. Now, let's be careful here before we make this particular guy out to be the bad guy. Because if you just flip the page back to Luke chapter 9, remember last week I told you in my my Bible I drew a line at at chapter 9 verse 51. Because it's at that point that Jesus says, he sets his mind, Luke tells us Jesus sets his mind on Jerusalem. His face is set toward Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. And so there's a run-in in Samaria. Good Samaritan. Next chapter. In Samaria, it says, uh, this is, I'm back in chapter 9. It says, Jesus sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, James and John of Peter, James and John, the inner three of the 12, the inner three, the closest to him, you know what they did? I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Or is it? It says, and when James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So, yeah, I love my neighbor, the Samaritan, so much. How about we just bring judgment down on them? So it's not just this lawyer. It's the disciples as well. And to be honest, it's all of us. The human tendency because of sin is to make walls, is to limit who is my neighbor, is to be self-centered. So Jesus... Um, well, there's, there's two mistakes here that this lawyer makes. The first one is he sets up a bad question. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I've, I've pointed this out to you before because it comes up in a couple of places. Several people ask that question. If I want to inherit, let's say, your father's money, what do I have to do? I, have to, I better be your brother. I have to have a relationship with that person, right? I can't earn it. It's about a relationship in most instances. And so to think that they could do something really is not about inheriting. It's about earning or buying. Good teacher, I want to buy eternal life. What's the cost is basically what he's saying. What good work do I have to do to get this? But that's not how an inheritance works at all. So that's his first mistake is setting up the question that way. And his second mistake is going into a battle of wits with the smartest man who's ever lived. If you're asked who the smartest man is, your answer should be Jesus. Hands down, he's the smartest man to have ever lived. Don't go into a battle of wits with him. So, Jesus plays along though. Notice right away, he answers a question with a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus doesn't directly answer it. He's about to lure this man in so that the man will indict himself at the end of the parable. Well, you know the law. How how do you read it? All right, so now he's got the man starting to expose his his knowledge of things, but his lack of meaning of them. And then the, the next question will be, who is my neighbor? And Jesus will answer that by saying to him, who was neighborly? 
So he'll ask a question and he'll actually change it. Instead of who, who is my neighbor, who acted like a neighbor in the story? And he'll get this man to um, answer correctly and basically testify against himself. So the lawyer knew the law, but he didn't know the meaning behind it. So you'll notice that even in answering, if you look down at the end of the, uh, the parable, he, won't even, he still won't even say the name Samaritan. I guess the one who showed mercy. He won't say the Samaritan. There's such a bias against these other people. So um, how does someone get eternal life? Well, they get it through a relationship with God. And you get a relationship with God by trusting in Christ. Christ is the way that we have a relationship. That's where the inheritance comes from. It comes from relying on him, believing in him, giving him our hearts. Jesus then reveals the compassion of God to all people. Now, I want you to understand that this is, this is not an allegory. Although it's interesting, in studying it, I found that the first five centuries of Christianity, all of the big names took this parable allegorically. Meaning they said, Jesus is meant to be the good Samaritan. And Adam is meant to be the man on the side of the road that's, that's been attacked. And the Levite and the priest are meant to be the law and the prophets. And the innkeeper is meant to be the church and et cetera, et cetera. And they all, they all did this for the first five centuries of Christianity. But that's not good Bible study. That's just not faithful to the text. Because right away it breaks down because... We're not half dead. We're totally dead in our sins and trespasses. So clearly Adam and his sin cannot be the man on the side of the road. Um, there's a number of places that break down. But I don't want us to miss something here. Jesus is teaching us the heart of the law. He's teaching us the intention behind it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And your neighbor is everyone. It does not matter who. It is humanity. You are a, a, a member of humanity. Therefore, you are your brother's keeper and your brother's keeper and vice versa. That's the heart behind the law. And what this teaching does is it makes us question our lack of compassion. Jericho is dangerous. The road down from Jerusalem to Jericho is like, it drops 3,000 feet, it's windy, it's through deserts, and there's a good chance that those thieves are just hanging out behind a rock. If I go over there and start helping this guy, I'm delaying my trip, I'm tarrying in a dangerous place, I might be mugged next. So there, there's, it's, it exposes my fear, my own risk. Look how much it cost this man, this Samaritan. First of all, he had to use all his first aid supplies on this guy. And then he had to put him on his own donkey, which meant he had to walk the rest of the way to the inn. And then he paid a lot of money at the inn for further care and promised to repay it on the way back. He, he likely got dirty in the process, so his clothing got blood on it or whatever. Um, he probably had to give some of his clothing to this man who was left naked and half dead. It cost him time. It slowed him down. Um, ceremonially, the priest and Levite, if they had gone over and he was actually dead and they touched him, he, they would have been ceremonially unclean, which meant they would not have been able to do their job. They weren't allowed by the laws of the old covenant to participate in the temple worship because they would have had to go through a whole cleansing process because they touched a dead body. So there, it, it's not as cut and dry as we like to make it. There's, there's a cost to this. By the end of Luke, by the end of the gospel, we do see that Christ is even better than the good Samaritan. It's not allegorical, but Jesus is an even better Samaritan, so to speak. He's, we're not half dead, we're totally dead. And he comes and he gives us new life. And we're not 
an inconvenience on the way to his business trip that he had other business to do. We are the business trip. We are his mission. He came directly for us. He came on a rescue mission for us. So he's an even better Samaritan. His riches make a relationship possible. The incredible grace and kindness and the the true brotherly love that he shows us and extends to us gives us a relationship with God. And then out of that relationship, we are empowered and motivated to want to pass that on to others. Because we've already received so much, then we have, we have resources to use, emotional, spiritual, and oftentimes physical resources to use to help somebody else. And that's his desire. God blesses that. He, he provides for it. He encourages it. His, the relationship motivates us to be like the Samaritan. Now, let me take you to Colossians 3, um, verse 12. I love chapter 3 of Colossians because it starts out by saying, if, meaning assuming you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on things above where Christ is. Think heavenly. Understand the heart behind the law. Think like that. And then it talks about putting off the old ways and putting on the new ways. And in verse 12 it says, put on then because you've been raised to new life with Christ, because you are an adopted son or daughter of the inheritor, because of that, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. It's the first thing. Then it goes on to humility and other things. Put on compassionate hearts. You have natural compassion in you. Develop it. More of it. Look for places to serve. Own this. Realize that what Jesus has done for you compels you to do the same for others. This ultimate physician in doing this and and healing us and then giving this teaching is healing society. So when he says to the disciples, you are the salt of the earth, salt is a natural preservative. It also is a seasoning and it flavors. You are the light of the world. It shines light into darkness. It provides visibility for the way to go. Jesus is the healer of society by bringing this truth from God's law to us. He's healing society, including us, and then he's enlisting us as his people to go and extend this to others. So, as he says in the end of this parable, you go and do likewise. And let's do it in his strength, in his power, because of what he has done for us. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I do thank you. I thank you for the equalities, the freedoms, the many gifts that we in this country get to experience. I thank you for what you have done to restore humanity to the dignity you intended for it. Thank you for making us in your image. Thank you for coming to redeem and restore us. And Lord, I pray for each person this week that you would show us a place where we can serve others, that you would bring a need before our eyes and help us to stir up the necessary compassion. May we be your hands and feet this week. For I ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.